Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime documentary or series, and I talk to the people who made them. We dive deep into the backstories and get answers to questions raised by what we just watched. This week continues our special six-part mini-season on the return of Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 2. And we welcome back Robert Wise, the series executive producer and director. Bob has been a part of the Unsolved Mysteries team from the very beginning. In fact, he was the cinematographer for the show's pilot episode, which debuted over three decades ago. He joins me again to talk about Death in Oslo, the second episode from Volume 2. When a woman was found dead in a luxury hotel room in Oslo, Norway, it appeared to be a suicide. But several details surrounding her death just don't add up. She had no identification. She registered at the hotel under a false name. There was no blood on her hand or the gun that killed her, and no one reported her missing. Who was this woman? Was she murdered? And could she have been part of a secret intelligence operation? 25 years later, all these questions remain unanswered. It is very intriguing when you hear that a young, elegant, unidentified woman is found dead in a hotel room. There must be a family out there somewhere that needs to know what happened to her. A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch the entire Unsolved Mysteries episode and then listen on. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, our guest was recorded in his home and not in a studio. We appreciate your understanding the change in sound. Now, before you hear my conversation with Bob, here is a discussion I had with my real-life partner in crime, my husband, Kevin Flynn, about the episode. Kevin's an Emmy award-winning former TV journalist, my true crime co-author, and the co-host of our other true crime podcast, Crime Writers On. He also hosts the podcast, These Are Their Stories, the Law and Order podcast. Take a listen to our breakdown of the episode and our reactions to the real-life mystery behind it. We have a real Scandi Noir thing going on here. What do you think of the setting of this story? I love that it's in Oslo in the 90s, because this is not long after the the fall of the Iron Curtain. So the idea, like later on, we get into the, there could be some spy thing mm. is really intriguing. But I do love that we get to see something in a setting that's unfamiliar to American audiences. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, whenever you have a an accent, you know, then I'm, I'm in. Yeah, you I'm do. all in for an accent. You do have a good uh, European accent for sure. Yeah. Um, Lars Christian Wegner, he's the reporter who works for VG mm-hmm. at the center of this investigation. He's always been curious about this story. Love the accent. This could have been an open and shut mystery. It could have been a woman. Could it have? Well, if not for maybe his persistence and digging and curiosity, it right? It could have been a lost mystery. Um so we have like this woman who who shows up and just the idea that she dies with the doors locked yes. from the inside. Yes, she's checked into a luxury hotel in mm-hmm. Oslo. We hear that this is a very high-end hotel yeah. for three days. She rarely goes in and out of her room, of course, right. according to the uh, key cards. She has a very interesting set of items uh, with her, including clothing with all of the labels cut out yes. and only... 
top body clothing? Well, I think she had a skirt. I don't think she One was... skirt and like 47 tops? Well, she could accessorize, Rebecca. You, you, <laughs> she was packing light. Yeah. Okay, well, see, see at first, like, I'm thinking, is she a scam artist? Mm. Because somehow she gets this high-end hotel room without providing any ID. How does she do that? Yeah, that's a great Even in question. the 90s, you had to do that. Yeah, to get a key card and everything. And it takes, like, days for them to find out. Wait a minute, she's been ordering room service. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's been up there. She's got no way to pay. Mm-hmm. Like, that in and of itself would be a really intriguing mystery. Like, who was this person who came through? I have a couple of questions to you about her identity. Yeah. She checks into the hotel as Jennifer Fairgate. Yeah. We have people who in the hotel who place her accent as being a German accent. Yeah. Does Jennifer Fairgate not sound like an American name, though? It sounds like a Western European name. Yeah. To me, you it know. sounds like a, I mean, I'm, this is me speculating. Yeah. Uh, to me, it sounds like an American name. Not that that matters. I just found that curious. And the other thing I found curious was that the person that she checked in with was somebody that they identified in the show as Lewis Fairgate. But when you see it written, it says Lois Fairgate. Right. Yes, that could be anybody. I was very curious about that. I'm like, is this a situation where they just assumed that a man standing in line with alleged Jennifer was named Lewis, but it was actually a second woman named Lois? Uh-huh. I found that very curious. Or a mark. Or a mark, or perhaps a second person. Yeah. Maybe they were two people on a mission. Well, she certainly was. With no pants. She- <laughs> <laughs> well, she was good enough at somehow talking her way into a monetary transaction mm-hmm. with a high-end hotel. I can see that she would be good with sort of letting people assume that that person or that person was part of her party. Right. Whether or not, you know, whether it's just sort of advantageous or mm-hmm. not. That's one of the details that like just start getting your head spinning. Yeah. Also, the details of, you know, getting all the room service if she's there allegedly to prepare for a suicide. Uh We see a plate with like a half-eaten sausage in a room. Like that's the chosen last meal, I guess, if you're assuming that she's... What a sad life if that's the case. Exactly. But nobody goes to Oslo for the sausage. <laughs> well, we don't know. We don't. We're not like experts. Oh, is it world on, famous? Experts on Norwegian cuisine, Kevin. Let's be honest. <laughs> um, but behind that double locked room, uh, you know, we hear that the security guard who originally went up to check the, mm-hmm. hears the gunshot and then leaves for about 15 minutes. There could yeah. have been opportunity for someone to leave, even though the door was yeah. double locked on the inside. Why doesn't he have like a radio or something? I don't know. This is a high end hotel, even if it is Oslo where the crime rate is negative 50 or mm-hmm. whatever. You know, they, they sent, have security. That's why they sent him up. Right. They didn't send a bellboy to right. say, excuse me, could I get your MasterCard? Right. So I don't know. But it's obvious that was a key part of the whole mystery. Mm-hmm. If you had eyes on the door between the gunshot and the other folks coming in to unlock the door, then you would know nobody came in. That's out. right. You right. You could leave the hotel room Without the key lock, you needed the key card to get in. Right. The question, of course, is that double locking situation, which has to be done from the inside. Right. And we hear a former agent of some kind of Secret Service later in the episode that that's no big deal. Anyone could do that. (laughs) I'm not sure if I believe anyone could do that. Well, the hotel did that. True. They were, you know, they have whatever the magic tool is. True. Which I'm glad the producers didn't tell us what it is. got to leave some mystery. I always wonder, too, with those electronic locks, if the hotel is able to lock the doors remotely. Like, just, you know, go into a system and lock them, you know, from the hotel uh-huh. system, not having it have to be done from the inside of the room. I've always been curious about uh-huh. that. So enter the police. Right. They get called. They arrive later. Uh, so there's been this gap in time. They walk into the room and we see the photo of how the gun is placed mm-hmm. in the woman's hand. Weird as heck. The way that it's placed in their hand, I am no expert 
on yeah. uh, anything having to do with holding a gun, how one would hold a gun when they shot someone or shot themselves. However, you're ready to speculate. I am a hundred percent ready to speculate okay. that you do not pick up a gun with your thumb and intend to pull the trigger with your thumb. I mean, the way you pick up a gun is like exactly the way you pick it up if you're pretending your hand is a gun. You pick it right. up like this, you turn it uh-huh. around, and then you pull the trigger with your uh-huh. index finger, right? right? But the way that she was holding the gun, she would have had to pull the trigger with her thumb, and it 100% looked the way if I were trying to stage a crime scene, would stage the crime scene, because I wouldn't think of that in the moment, right? I'd be right. like, I just shot you, I want to put the gun in your hand to make like, I would just take your hand like uh-huh. this and I would just, no one, of course, it's a podcast they can't see, I would just put it there. Right. That's how it looked. Does it look that way on purpose? I don't know. Because don't you think like someone who's a super professional would do better than that? <laughs> you would think. All right, so basically there are two, there really are only two conclusions. One is that she went there to die. Mm-hmm. The other is that she went there and- something befell her right okay because we have seen this in other like forms of media yes stories about strangers like mysterious people and they they go to a you know far-flung place far-flung place or a vacation place what makes it interesting is that the length they go to cover their tracks Mm -hmm. so that they are not discovered there are no relatives that can know that their loved one is not coming back maybe it's done because if this is the case, she went to Oslo to kill herself. She doesn't want her parents and her boyfriend and grandma. Her children. Her children to to know that she is dead. They want her to just think she disappeared. Think she just disappeared. Yeah. For whatever motivation. So let's talk about that. So if she did that, she's the one who cut the tags off her clothes. Yes. So then why does she give this uh, Belgian address? Right. Is it just because, again, it's a place that you can't trace and you don't think that a TV crew is going to go there right. years later to find well, out? But here's the whole thing. I mean, dying by suicide, if the aim is truly to make it an anonymous act, no one will know who I am and mm-hmm. no one who loves me will know where I went. Would a high-end hotel in the middle of a major metropolitan area be the place you go to do it? Or would you go to do it at a place where nobody will find you? I mean, that seems, right. it just doesn't make sense to me. I think that the the tags being off the clothes, we again hear later from the former agent of a clandestine uh-huh. agency, that that's a very common tactic used. It's tradecraft, in, yeah. In tradecraft, that, you know, if you are if you die or if you lose a piece of clothing, it won't be able to be traced back to your country mm-hmm. or place of origin. Like, that right. makes a lot of sense. Right. Which is the case here. Well, certainly the person who... I don't think, came into her room if there was somebody and murdered her, mm-hmm. then took a tiny little pair of scissors and methodically cut all the labels off of her top-only clothing. Like, that makes no sense at all. Right. Right. So that's a real question. Um, the second question that gets raised is, if there was a second person in the hotel room with her, uh-huh. uh, Lois or Lewis, did that person commit the murder and then take all the pants? Admittedly, <laughs> I'm sorry what? to fixate on the pants. It's just a very strange detail. <laughs> what was what was so important about the pants? Mm. That that's a okay. That's a great unsolved mystery. <laughs> but she was also there. I want to talk. Okay, now about what if she was there on some sort of mission? Right. It doesn't have to be an assassination mission. It could literally no. just be she was there to gather intel mm-hmm. or talk to a Pass source. She was gone for almost a full day. Maybe right? she's a handler who is cultivating sources for she whatever be, agency she right. works for. Oh, that's great. She could be transferring uh, information, yeah. you know, microfilm just or something. She doesn't have to be an assassin. And she's got 25 bullets. Oh, that's right. I forgot that detail. Why does she need 25 In bullets? In a briefcase, just loose. Yeah. 
And a gun I mean, that with all the of the most, right? You can fill the clip. Yeah. You know, I know you only need one, but you don't need the remainder of a box. Right. That's like a box of bullets. Also, the serial number apparently was scratched off the gun. This is what I didn't know. That you can scratch it off, but it's engraved down deep. Yeah. You can't just like scratch it up. You gotta go all the way down. Right. That seems like something that somebody else would do for her. I mean, she probably could do it herself. Sure. But that sounds like the kind of thing where somebody has to know that. Mm. And it seems like a skill. Right. That you could have or you could, you know, maybe you don't. What do you think the truth is here? I think she was, and I think she was a spy. Mm. I think she was involved in some kind of cloak and dagger stuff. And that's because all the, all, all the good evidence kind of points that way. Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm going. Yeah, I can't disagree with you. If nothing else, the labels out of the clothing make no sense whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the being able to check into the hotel, I've got a lot of questions about that. I'd love to find out how that was possible. And you know what? I agree with Lars. I think she deserves a name, and I hope this show gives that back to her. Thanks so much again to my husband, Kevin Flynn, my favorite person to watch Netflix with. Now, here's my interview with Robert Wise. Bob, welcome back to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you. It's great to be back. Now, just remind us again, you are one of the founding mothers slash fathers of this whole franchise. I, I think I'm <laughs> a cousin. Or a, I mean, John and Terry certainly were the founders, but I was involved in the, you know, from the get-go as the cinematographer, yeah. Yeah, and we talked during cycle one of the return of Unsolved Mysteries. How have you felt about the reaction to the the first volume of the series on Netflix? It's astounding. I mean, it really was amazing. We knew we had an audience, you know, baked in just because of the history of the show. But to see the response on Netflix and how long we were in the top 10 and number one, it's, it's wonderfully overwhelming. It was great. Now, the story in this episode, Death in Oslo, it is I will be honest, squarely in my wheelhouse. I'm a huge fan of this kind of mystery. I love anything uh, that touches anywhere close to my favorite genre of Scandi Noir and Scandi Crime. (laughs) And really a fascinating story. And I'm curious how it first came across your radar. The way they all do. Uh, You know, we have a team of researchers who literally are scanning the globe for stories. And this was one that we caught on early on. And, you know, the more we looked into it and the more we contacted Lars and talked with him, it just realized this is just too good a story. I mean, it's just an amazing story. And, of course, Netflix wanted to do international stories as well. So it fit both of those. I want to talk a little bit about Lars. He hasn't let this go. Uh, Mm. What is his pull to this story? We asked him that. I mean, at first we said, it seems like you're obsessed. And he said, no, (laughs) you know, I'm not obsessed. But he he realizes this is a really good story, which it obviously is. And I do think he there's a certain you know, I don't want to talk for him because <laughs> he'd get mad at me. But I think there's a personal connection. He does feel like this woman deserves to be buried properly with a headstone, and her family needs to know what's happened to her. It wasn't a funeral. It was just a burial. No priests. A coffin. And the pole bearers. How can a, a funeral or a burial be more, more alone than, uh, than this one? He's a journalist and he's been pursuing it for 25 years and was thrilled to work with us because I think he realizes that we have a good chance of finding that one person who might know who she is. 
This story in particular, I think, has more mysteries inside the mystery than <laughs> any of the other stories that I've seen so far on the new volumes of Unsolved Mysteries. I mean, there's Jennifer Fairgate's alias. That, that's yeah. apparently an alias. There's, you know, all these questions about how she died. There's forensic mysteries. There's a mystery of her clothing, which we'll talk <laughs> about. What to you is the biggest, you know, piece of the puzzle here that you would love an answer to? I I think it's the door, the mm. double lock door. It's only able to lock from the inside. And so how does somebody get out and it's still locked from the inside with a dead woman on the bed? When you talk with Ula, who's the, you know, the intelligence agent, he just looks at you like, oh, pshaw, you know, we can do that with her eyes closed. Now, he, obviously, I don't know. He might be right. And maybe that is the answer. But short of that, it's, I have no idea how it could be done. Hmm. That's a big question for me, too. And I'm curious, how did you get him as a source in this episode? Because he is a really fascinating character. And his sort of nonchalance about all of the <laughs> tradecraft, he's like, oh, yes. no, we, we do that. That's common. We do that. We do that. No problem. I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We we got him through Lars. Lars' investigation over the years, he came across Ula. They met and they've become friends, I think. And and Ula was you know kind enough to join us as well. Um, but that came through. In fact, I think all of the people that we interviewed came through Lars. We mm. figured he'd spent all this time and he's gotten to know the right people to ask the right questions. So we just figured we would leapfrog on his work, you know. He must feel very hopeful because he has had big platforms for this story in the past, but they've largely been regional. Mm -hmm. And this is a truly international platform for his reporting. Is he just feeling like a sense of excitement about the release of this episode? Yeah, absolutely. He's done thing in Norway. He's done his own little video and he's done the the build cycling the you know the german magazine which is a lot but it's germany so yeah he's very excited about the idea that that netflix is international and you know you just need one person to say oh i know yeah and come forward so it's just a matter of getting the word out and netflix international is, is a pretty good way to do it I'm very curious about the fact that this person who goes by the name Jennifer Fairgate was able to get this hotel room without providing a credit card or passport. We know that wasn't hotel policy. Did anybody in the hotel ever ex provide any explanation as to why, how that could have happened? No. Um, it was kind of a rush hour. It was the end of the evening when a lot of the airlines were, you know, the pilots and stewardesses and I think there were students back then. Um, flight attendants were checking in. It was a madhouse at the front desk, and maybe somebody just slipped up. Uh, it could be that, though. It's a little weird. I mean, everybody who travels internationally knows the passport's one of the first things you have to give up, you know. Right. So, you know, it could just have been a mistake, or it could be that, uh, you know, she slipped somebody some money to get in, or it could be it was a setup from the beginning. I, I, I don't think anybody really knows. You know? I'm sure Ula would say, we did that all the time. <laughs> I was going to say, they do, of course, you ask Ula says, yeah, that's a, you know, part of the course. Exactly. exactly. Which it might be, by the way. I don't know. Yeah. Interesting detail about her check-in was this report that she may have been with a man, uh, that she had this accent that mm. sounded East German, and she may have been with a man. And I'll tell you, as an American, when I looked at that hotel registration card, I saw a couple of things. I saw the name Jennifer Fairgate, which to me does not sound like a Belgian name or a mm -hmm. German name 
it almost it sounds like an American name, frankly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I also saw the name Lois, L-O-I-S, which right. I believe everybody there assumed was a European spelling of Lewis, but I saw as a woman's name, Lois. Right. That raised questions for me. What about you? Yes. First, it was a question, but uh, it is a male man's name. I think it's sort of a French name, mm-hmm. which brings you back to the Belgian because there's a lot of French speakers in Belgium. Right. So uh, I think that's at first I thought it was Lois, but I'm pretty sure everybody now agrees that it's Luis, who which is a which is a male name. Hmm. No, who he is, of course, we have no idea. <laughs> what What else do you make of that uh, card? Because Jennifer Fairgate again. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, all I could think of is this is a very it's a very American sounding name. It sounds even more American than British to me, maybe British. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, I I immediately went and looked and to, to see how she wrote the date, and she wrote it in the European style yes. with uh, day first and then and then right. month and year instead of month day year. So I'm like, okay, well, I don't know. And then the, the sense of the accent, I I felt like I had a maybe like some insight here. Of course, Ula then threw it all off. <laughs> um, <laughs> He'll do that. But how did how did you get all of these? These photographs, the photograph of the card, the photograph of the crime scene. Yeah, it all it's again, it comes from all from Lars. I mean, Lars has been doing this thing for 25 years, you know, and, you know, I have to say that the, the Oslo police and the Norwegian you know, state police have been pretty cooperative with him and they've given him all the material. And we got the materials from Lars with the permission from the police. I don't want to ask you to speculate too much, but I do have so many questions about the room in particular. Why do you think it is that the closet only had clothing for the top half of this woman's body and not the bottom half? Right. I no idea. <laughs> it's bizarre. I, mm. I don't know. Um, and she had one pair of shoes. I mean, there was shoes missing that we know about. No toiletries. No toiletries. Yeah, I don't know how she, you know, again, maybe... Whoever I, I, I don't know. I you know I I was gonna say maybe somebody wanted to keep her in the room so she wouldn't go out with her without any clothes on. But I you know I have a theory. Sense. Oh, good. My theory is that perhaps she was packing to leave, and mm-hmm. that her pants were all in the drawers and her tops were all hanging, and so she had packed all of her bottom half clothing first, anything that was in drawers, and that her death occurred before she packed the top stuff, but then whoever killed her took her suitcase. That was my theory. What do you think? Well, except if she had skirts, Hmm. she would be hanging them up and they wouldn't be in a drawer. Yeah, that's true. But she was wearing a skirt, correct? (laughs) No. 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 She she had stockings on. Oh, that's right. But she had nothing else. And that probably would have gone with a skirt. That's correct. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. This is not helping. This is I'm not sorry. helping my. That's okay. I mean, I really did feel as watching this episode like an amateur detective. Mm, yeah. You know, I, I was like, maybe, I, and it sounds ridiculous. I mean, this thing has been poured over by investigators for decades. <laughs> but I'm like, maybe I will see something yes, that others absolutely. didn't see. That could be. Who knows, right? The missing labels in the clothing. Yeah. We hear that's a common tradecraft yeah. technique. Why yeah. is that? Because the the idea is they don't want anybody to be able to trace you back through the clothes. If, for example, again, this is back in the '90s, so um, maybe not so much now. With you know, you can buy everything over the internet. But if you had all Italian clothes, for example, or all you know French clothes, they might say, "Well, at least that's a starting point. Let's contact the French police or the German police or whatever it is." So 
any labels is just an indication of where you've been. Hmm. So I think that it's, and it's a simple thing to do. You know, if you think about it, if you're trying to hide your identity, cutting your labels doesn't take long and what the hell may as well. Right. I mean, it could just be that you're a person who doesn't like having labels in your clothing, right? Exactly. Yeah. Some people say, well, maybe, you know, how it bugs you on the back of your neck and stuff. Right. But, the, but it was for the most part taken out of her shoes, taken out of everything. So it wasn't hmm. just the labels behind your neck. Right, right. Another question I had, uh, you know, a big question that comes up in the episode is about the forensics and the positioning of mm. the gun. Yeah. Um, you know, from my eye, looking at the crime scene photos and sort of the recreation, the way, aside from the lack of bruising, which I, I'd love you to address that too, but aside from that, the position of the hand does not, it looks like it was placed. It does not look, you, you imagine if you're going to shoot yourself in the head that your hand would fly out sideways or, or just sort of flop away because you'd, you'd be dead. You wouldn't right. have the wherewithal to then put it, you know, gently kind of in your midsection, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's a big gun. I mean, it's a big, heavy gun. And that was the whole point of doing that demonstration with, you know, at the at the shooting range is to show you the recoil of this thing. It's you know, it's a, it's a serious gun. And the likelihood that it would just fall neatly on your stomach in your hand uh, is, I mean, no, it just it's not going to happen. Plus the fact that there's no gunpowder residue and there's no bruising and all the other stuff, which I also thought was fascinating. Yeah. Um, you, you know, that part of it really makes you say, well, this is not a suicide. This She was definitely murdered and in a sophisticated way because there was no residue anywhere. So... If it was a mistake or the, the the police overlooked initially was the placement of the gun. Hmm. And I think if they had, you know, taken a half a step back, because one thing, by the way, I we should mention that isn't in the film is when the police first were called, they were told it was a suicide hmm. by the hotel people. So they came in saying this is, you know, just thinking of it as a suicide. Confirmation um, bias. That's a very classic kind of start to a bad investigation, right? Yeah, they put the blinders on and say, okay, it's a, you know, and that's why they didn't do a lot of things like why didn't they check the video cameras, for example, and why they got rid of the evidence of the sheets and all that stuff so early on is because they just thought it was a suicide and they approached it as a suicide and only later did they go, hmm, maybe it's not. And by then it was kind of too late for all the essential forensic evidence. Wasn't there also some details about the gun that weren't included in the episode? I, to be fair, I have notes from you, so I know that this is the case. Could you talk about that? Yeah, there is. There's a lot of questions in the show. You should see all the ones that we didn't put in. Tell me all of them, please. Oh, <laughs> okay. You got a couple hours at least, right? <laughs> um, well, one of them, and it does get a little complicated, and this is why we didn't put it in. And I'll try to be clear, but please let me know if it's not. The, the gun is a semi-automatic gun. So when you pull the trigger, it fires the bullet. And then there's two steps to it going, the trigger going back to the first position so you can pull the next bullet. Halfway forward, you know, as it returns to the initial position, halfway, it clicks and a new bullet goes into the chamber. Then it goes all the way to the, to the forward position so you can pull the trigger again. Is that so far so good? Yes. Okay. When the police took the gun from her hand, it clicked, which implies that the the trigger was in that middle position. So she mm. pulled the trigger, it went halfway back, and somehow her thumb held it in the middle position against a pretty strong spring, mm. which... Yeah, again, we spent a lot of time talking about this with the investigators. And again, we can't figure out partly... 
you know, if she's dead, there's no, you know, there's no strength in the muscles. So how could her thumb be holding it against the spring? It wasn't up against the guard or anything. It was just sitting there if you look at the photos. So that's hard to understand. And if somebody shot her, why put the gun in her hand in that middle position? You know, it would think right. it's just easier. Just, I mean, it would be natural. Just let the trigger go back to the first position. So this click that the investigator, when they took the gun away, heard is another one of these mysteries. You say, I just don't get it. Right. I have a follow-up question because my understanding that this wasn't the only round fired, the one that killed her, right? Exactly. Yeah, the other, there is a second round that was fired, obviously, before she was killed. They found two shells on the floor. They found two slugs under the bed. Um, the first round was apparently shot through a pillow near her head. And it, what the police said it was, was her testing the weapon to test for recoil before she laid down and shot herself. That was hmm. part of the suicide theory. Of course, if you believe she was murdered, it's and it seems more logical that the bad guy or bad gal held the gun next to her head and fired it, sort of like a warning to say, if you don't tell me what I need to know, I'm going to kill you kind of warning. And again, we don't, you know, that, that makes sense right. from, you know, what we know and all the movies we've watched. So um, it implies, again, that it was somebody else who did this. This was not a suicide. Right. It also implies that even if it was a suicide, th there's some strangeness there, too, because mm -hmm. it does seem unlikely to me that somebody who intended to kill themselves with a powerful gun in a hotel room, which is essentially a public place, mm -hmm. would fire a first shot yeah. and, and perhaps, you know, raise the alarm of, of anybody who would have heard that shot. Exactly. And it was fired into a pillow. But we did a test just for the fun of it, and it doesn't matter. It's still right. a loud gun. I mean, muffles it, but not to the point that it's silent. Right, right. I've been to a shooting range one time in my life. I fired a gun a single time. And even uh, the other people there, you know, there were sort of different, you know, form factors of guns, different types of guns. And, you know, unless you have a very sophisticated silencer, mm -hmm. a gun is loud. And we all know that even in expensive hotels, walls are not thick. <laughs> right, you know? exactly. That's something that I kept thinking about. Mm -hmm. um, there's another thing that I happen to know may have been uh, missing from the episode that I'm dying to hear about. <laughs> and that's about items in the closet. Can you talk about that? Yeah. When the cleaning crew came in, uh, we talked about it because it sets a time frame where she wasn't in the room. One of the, the cleaning women came in and she noticed a pair of shoes in the closet. And they were nice shoes. And she actually made a point of it because she said, gee, I'd like to get a pair like that myself. So she remembers those shoes very specifically. But when the police came and were called in, those shoes were gone. Hmm. So it's another one of these, well, where did the, you know, why and where did the clothes go? Where did these pair of shoes go? It, it clearly wasn't on her feet, which is another question. Why, you know, why would you kill yourself with shoes on? But And no, and no bottoms. And, but no bottoms, exactly. Right, right. Exactly. Um, now, it might be, by the way, you know, it might be that the skirt or whatever she was, probably skirt because she's wearing uh, stockings. The skirt may have gotten full of blood or something when she was shot. And that's why they took the, 
the skirt away as part oh, of some evidence. evidence. Oh, that's yeah. an interesting idea. I was also thinking too. I mean, I, I hate to like stick to this whole bottoms thing, but it's just such a weird. <laughs> it's so weird. It is because you can't walk around in a hotel without pants or a skirt on. I mean, not they, she, they, they, she clearly had some in her room that were taken by somebody. Mm-hmm. That is, that's, yeah. that's not disputable as far as I'm concerned. Right. And I just kept thinking, like, is there something about pants and skirts that's more identifying, perhaps, than, mm. than you know, tops and jackets? I mean, is was there a struggle if she was in the middle of packing? You know, perhaps the pants were laid out on the bed. I mean, that's it. Just it just seems to me that if you were a killer and you wanted to take away things that identify identified your victim the things you would take would be the toiletries because mm-hmm. there might be dna on a toothbrush right. or whatever and this was you know what 1995 you know dna was a factor at least yes uh and on the minds of people at the time um you would take away those things but why all of the pants and skirts and shoes right. i mean it, it just seems like there had to have been a some reason that maybe spoke to her identity or something mm-hmm yeah, I'm good. <laughs> I'm sort of intrigued with this idea that maybe she was packing. Yeah. And that maybe she, yeah, maybe she was interrupted. Like you're saying, maybe her bottoms were on the bed and she was packing and just happened to have all the other skirts put away at this moment. Yeah, it's the only uh, thing I could think of. I mean, that's yeah. for real. I want to call Lars and let him know my thing. Yeah, well, that first thing. <laughs> <laughs> um I want to hear more about this double lock situation. I mean, you pointed to it as one of the most fascinating parts of the mystery for you. What more can you tell me about that? Well, Lars did some experiments. He was trying to figure out how you could do this. And he found a guy who installed similar locks. He may have even installed the locks at the plaza, but he he knew the lock system very well. And this guy came up with a very ingenious way of doing it, which was you take a string, you tie it to the... well. Let me take a step back. Let me be sure it's really clear how this lock thing works. These locks has a a lever as a handle. If you push it down, it opens the door. If you pull it up, it double locks. So it's not a double lock like we're all used to now, which is essentially a deadbolt separate lock. This is built into the system. So if you lift the handle up, it locks from the inside and you can only get in with a super duper secret key that the security people have. Actually, it's it's put in a vault, believe it or not. Hmm. So this locksmith came in and said, well, if I took a string, I tied it to the inside handle, put it over the top of the door, close the door, pull the string, it would lift the handle up, and then you could pull the string through, and there would be no evidence that that's how it was done. Hmm. Which, he was able to do it, but of course it (laughs) took him a long time and multiple tries, and so yes, it can be done. The problem, of course, is that if you've just killed somebody, you know, to do all this thing and waiting for somebody to, you know, be going to the to their meeting and walking down the hallway while you're pulling strings through the the top of the door just feels a little not very practical, but it could be done. So, you know, I, I appreciate Lars's effort to make to show that it could be done, but I'm just not sure it's the way that it was done. You know, cut to Ula going, oh, yeah, we do it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any sense? And I'm curious because, you know, there's an idea that maybe there was somebody working at the hotel who in some way, you know, was working either with this woman or with others. And, you know, this was obviously a place where a lot of important things happened. Mm-hmm. Do you know if those in and out logs from those locks can be altered? Um. <laughs> 
I don't know. I mean, if you ask Hula, of course they can. Um, <laughs> we do it all the time. We do it all the time. I'm guessing they could be. Um, well, I don't know. It's a good question. I, I, it never came up. I never heard anybody talk about that as an idea that they were altered. It could be. Um, but I do think that this idea that there was somebody on the inside working with her or working with the bad guys or whoever certainly is a possibility. It would help explain how she got in without a passport. Um, a lot of things like that would certainly help understand a few things. But uh, whether the, the logs were changed, I suppose they could be. But hmm. they did it in a way that was unhelpful because it, right. it added more questions than answers. Absolutely, especially when there are no pants in the room. I mean, to me, again, <laughs> is the detail that I cannot yeah. shake. I cannot yeah. shake that detail. And I, I forget if it's in the movie. I think it is. Lars, he was puzzled and he basically brought a bunch of photos to his wife and his wife's friends. And he said, just look at this and, you know, what do you see? Can you help me sort of figure out what's going on here? And they all went, you know, Where's her, where's her bottoms? <laughs> and it was, I don't know that it was something that Lars noticed all by himself, but all, like all the women say, well, she didn't have any underwear and she didn't have any skirts or pants or anything. So that's what set that whole, you know, direction off. Hmm. There were two really interesting forensic scientific methods employed in attempts to help identify uh, this woman who I, I think of as a victim. So if I use the word victim, please yes. know that it's it's because I really don't believe she committed suicide. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of them I know actually know a little bit about because I helped work on a podcast called Bear Brook, which featured a case where radioactive isotopes were used oh. for geographic uh, location. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that and um, about the fact that this woman was so incredibly young? Yes. Yes. She was 24, I think. Yeah, that's a fascinating. The isotope evaluation was amazing. I'd never heard of it before. Um, I mean, basically the idea, if you're born within a certain period of time, which is around the time of the nuclear testing, um, the the levels of testing, above ground testing, creates a certain level of isotopes in the air, which ends up gathering in your in the enamel of your teeth. And it, it's a pretty st distinct curve. So if you're born in 1972, it's going to be different than if you were born in 1968. Mm. And the scientist in Sweden basically uh, had calculated this, was able to use the, the amount of isotope in her teeth to determine what year she was born. And it's like, wow. I mean, that's... It, it is. It's fascinating. Yeah. The other thing that they can use, by the way, um, is leaded gasoline. So there are parts of the world where leaded gasoline is permitted in different levels. And then there are different times during which leaded gasoline, you know, became controlled in different parts of, the, right? uh, parts of the world. Yeah. So there have been cases where victims have been identified regionally based on isotopes connected to the hmm. levels of lead that were present in the atmosphere because of leaded gasoline. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's Amazing. a fascinating uh, piece of science. <laughs> So, though, is the DNA analysis. And I'd love to hear more about how it was they were able to determine that this woman calling herself Jennifer Fairgate was likely from Germany. I, I think it's the same technology that they're using now with like Ancestry, you know, and mm. all those kinds of technologies. They've just been able to to look at your DNA. And, and, and frankly, I'm not exactly sure exactly what the technology is. Genetic but, genealogy, it's called. Right, right. But it's, you know, there's a way to tell that, you know, with this combination of, of genes, you're probably from this area versus that area. Mm. I mean, I mean, it's obvious between, you know, Germany and China and 
you know, they seem to be able to hone it in to Eastern Europe in the Germany, Eastern Germany, Poland area is where they think she probably came from. Do you know if there are any attempts being made now to use genetic genealogy and like current DNA databases to try to track down relatives? There, they can't. Mm. There's Norway has very specific rules about the oh. use of your, your genetic. And I guess unless you, uh, you know, can sign a form saying, yes, it's okay to do it, they won't let you. Because, of oh. course, that's a natural thing. Just throw it into the ancestry or, you know. Uh, Jed match. Yeah. Yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's um, that's fascinating. It. So, yeah. so it's because of where she was found. Mm-hmm. So it would be illegal then for someone to send her DNA profile to the U.S. and upload yes. it here. That would not be permitted. That would not be permitted. Yeah. Wow. And that's not something Lars is going to do. I know that. That's fascinating because to me, I was watching this and I was like, that's how this case will be solved. But it yeah. can't be. Uh, that's that's really, really interesting. Right. Yeah. Unless he's able to get some kind of a legal waiver or something else that could happen. Uh, yeah, I know. It's sort of it's a shame because it seems like it's a great tool. I'm really curious about the trip to Belgium and uh, <laughs> the idea that Jennifer Fairgate gave a false address that was close enough to a real address to Mm. seem credible, but not real. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, we wanted to go partly to establish what this town was, you know, how big a town it was or, you know, and it's it's a little town. I mean, it's it's, you know, it's a a modestly little town now. It was a really little town back then. we wanted to talk with people and show the picture around, which which Lars had done before, but we thought it would be fun to do it again. And we end up meeting with the mayor who'd been there since forever. And he says, look, I've known everybody and I'm the mayor. That's how I get elected is I know everybody. And he says he doesn't, doesn't recognize the name. He doesn't recognize her. Uh, and the street is uh, Rue de la Station, which is basically essentially Main Street. And the the feeling is that almost... Not every, but a lot of towns are going to have that. It's a little bit like saying I'm on, you know, I live on 805 Main Street. The likelihood that those are Main Street is pretty high. But the fact that the number was wrong, you know, she mm-hmm. gave a number that didn't exist. So she got some of it right, some of it wrong. And then one thing we didn't deal with a lot, but she gave the exchange number for that area. It wasn't exactly uh, the name of the town, but the next town over had that exchange. So she must have known the area to give an exchange number that was close to what her fake address was. Hmm. So the sen- that's why there's a sense that she may not be Belgian, but she was probably familiar with that area. It's almost like, you know, what I kept thinking of was when, not that I tell a lot of lies, but when you're, <laughs> I'm just going to say, when you're a little kid and you want to tell a lie, <laughs> um, you do sometimes stick kind of close to mm-hmm. the truth so that right. you can't, you know, if you're fact checked, you're not, you know, caught in some whopper. But there are details that you know well enough that you can right. fill in. Is exactly. that is that what you think was going on here? Yes, the sense is that she knew the area. Maybe she lived there. Or maybe she spent some time in the area. Or maybe, you know, if she is a spy, that, that her backstory she remembered it well, and it was it was well done. So it reflected something close. Um, I mean, if you're doing a backstory, you're not going to give an exact address because you'll say, well, you know, let's go talk to the people who live there now sort of thing. So by giving something close but not exactly is actually, if you think about it, a smart way to go. You know, as much as Ula just kind of, you know, so yeah, that's what we do. It does make sense that if she was some kind of undercover person, 
you would have a, a cover story that's like what she gave. It's similar hmm. to, you know, to what could be real, but it's not exactly right. Hmm. I am curious about the spy theory. Can you talk a little bit about the geopolitics and being in Oslo and how all that could have come together and played into a narrative of her being a spy? Like, what would she potentially have been spying on? What could have been going on there? The the Oslo Accords, obviously, between Israel and the Palestinians took place a couple of years before. Mm-hmm. Um, and that took place in Oslo, obviously, but it actually took place at the Plaza Hotel at some point. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. Not all, They moved around a fair amount because it did take some time, but there was times where it was done there as well as they stayed there. This was, as, as Lars often says, this was where the kings and queens and rock stars were. It was the only place in town back then, the really fancy high-end hotel. So the Oslo Accords were there. Oslo too was sort of I think, wrapping up at that point. But there was a lot of other negotiations. Oslo became kind of the place for high and generally secret negotiations. I think there was four or five other negotiations going on at the time, like peace talks of different kinds from around the world were all taking place in Oslo, as well as there was a sense because of the Oslo Accords that there might have still been a lot of Israeli and Palestinian spies in the, in the area. You know, because a lot of people who took part in the negotiations were still in Oslo. Hmm. So it sort of became this hub for spy activity. Um, so that that's the sense that maybe that's why she was there. I mean, you know, I mean, it could be she was there for something else, another kind of spy mission completely. But Oslo does sort of had at the time had a reputation for being being a center point for secret negotiation. Do you think it's possible that a key to this mystery being solved will be somebody in the intelligence community who's perhaps no longer in the intelligence community who could perhaps shed some light on an operation? No. A, because it's a long time ago. Hmm. The sense was from, if you talk with Ula, he, his sense was that she was and it's so interesting. She was probably either Israeli or Palestinian, if, mm. if you're connecting it to the Oslo talks or the aftermath. Uh, and I don't think those guys will ever tell you anything. Um, right, right. But um, you, you never know. I, my sense is that it'll be some high school friend of hers or, or childhood friend of hers or somebody like that who will say, oh, my God, I didn't realize that's whatever happened to old Joni. Mm. You know? But I don't know that it'll be somebody on the inside. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, Lars believes that it's going to be somebody recognizing her, hmm. right? Yeah. Is that is that what you believe as well? I think so. Yeah, I think at this point, I mean, Lars has done, I mean, almost anything you can think of in any other way, but just to find somebody who recognizes her. So, yeah, I think that makes sense. I'm absolutely positive there are people out there who knows who Jennifer is. So that is what we are hoping for. That's the only thing that can solve this mystery. Is there anything else about this mystery that you really hope viewers take away from watching this episode, Death in Oslo? I do feel hmm, uh, it's it's so easy and it's so much fun to get caught up in, in the, the conversation we've been having, which is all right. the, the rabbit holes. But, you know, it is a woman who was was probably murdered and you hope her family knows, you know, mm-hmm. if if you believe Lula, they his basically what he says is look if it was a spy operation the family knows they've been given money they've been compensated they've been told that she was working for the cause of 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 the national interest and 
everything's peaceful, you know, like just let it be. But if that's not the case, then there is a family who must still be wondering what that will happen to their daughter um, or friends or, you know, who knows what. So I do think there's the human component to this that it's easy to lose, but I don't want to forget. How hopeful are you, Bob, that this mystery can be solved by it airing on Unsolved Mysteries and getting this huge platform? I think I'm pretty optimistic. Um, I mean, I am just generally speaking, but I think it just takes one or just takes somebody who might know somebody who knows somebody. Um, so I, I guess I am optimistic. I, you know, there's a lot of our stories, are, the likelihood of something somebody coming forward is not very high, but this one, I think... There's a good chance. I'm sure hopeful. Well, Bob Wise, congratulations on the success of Unsolved Mysteries. And this in particular is such a fascinating episode. Thank you so much for directing it. Thank you so much for putting it in this series. And thank you so much for talking to me about it. Oh, you're welcome. It's been great. And uh, yeah, may we, may we have many more of these conversations in the future. I hope so. Okay, thanks. We have reached the end of this week's episode. Many thanks to our guest, Robert Wise. Fans of Unsolved Mysteries might remember these words from the late and irreplaceable former host of the show, Robert Stack. For every mystery, someone somewhere knows the truth. Perhaps that person is someone listening. Perhaps it's you. The unidentified woman known as Jennifer Fairgate died at the Oslo Plaza Hotel on June 3rd, 1995. If you or someone you know has any information about who she is or what might have happened to her, go to unsolved.com to share your story or to learn more about the hundreds of other mysteries covered by the series. And for more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to, rate, and review this show and share it with friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 2, Episode 3, Death Row Fugitive. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.